it's all about what we can do on a personal level that will contribute to the bigger picture. Welcome to Brave New Girls podcast. I'm Lou Hamilton, artist, author and founder of Brave New Girl Media. And I'm here to bring you inspirational guests and support on your own Brave New Girl journey so that together we can live better, help more people and create a more healthy planet. My guest this week is Sue Reed, author of The Rewilding of Molly McFlynn. Set in rural Northumberland between 2020 COVID-19 pandemic and the 1649 Newcastle witch trials, this is a story of a girl who is rewilded both in ditching her addiction to dieting and in finding the agency to be true to herself and live a more sustainable life. Welcome, Sue, to Brave New Girls podcast. Hi, Sue. How are you? Hi, Lou. I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being so patient. We've had a bit of a tech gremlin morning, but we're here and we're all good to go. So I'm delighted to have you on. I really enjoyed reading your book. It's actually aimed for younger readers, but I was transported and I really enjoyed the story and all the themes that are part and parcel of it, which also tie in very well with the podcast. So can you explain what the book is about? And also, there are three things that we do in the podcast that you also do in the book, and that's the rewilding of self, of how we learn to come to back to ourselves, which then leads us on to be able to help others, which then leads us on to feel that we we're able to contribute and live a more sustainable life. So give us a quick overview of, of the book and how you explore those themes. It's interesting. It was pitched for 13 plus by the publishers, but so many older readers are saying that they've enjoyed it. So I'm guessing it's ticking that crossover genre box now. So it starts with Molly, age 15. Molly is sent to live with her rather bohemian grandparents in the wilds of Northumberland, initially just for a few days. Then the first lockdowns announced in the beginning of March 2020. Molly's furious. She can't eat the food. Her grandma forages for wild garlic. Her friends have disowned her. The Wi-Fi is terrible. And life for her is all but over. She's used to living in the town. She's got a quite consumerist lifestyle at the beginning. And on one of her walks, she meets a girl who's homeless in the woods. At first, Molly isn't very nice to her. She's quite a bitch to her. And then she begins to realize that this girl is actually on the run from the 17th century witch hunts that were taking place at the time. In particular, the 1649 witch hunts in Newcastle, where her mother, Anne Watson, has been banged up in jail. So Anne Watson was one of the women who was hung on the town moor in 1649 on accusations of witchcraft. And together they form a friendship. And as the novel unfolds, Molly finds her agency. She comes to help Martha, but she also assists the family with, with troubles that they've been having. I don't want to give too many spoilers here. Molly rewilds in herself. She moves away from her consumerist lifestyle, but we know as readers at the beginning that the friends have been putting enormous pressure on her that aren't very nice to her. But Molly's been trying desperately to fit in with this friendship group 
And she learns over the course of the novel that she doesn't have to create a full self in order to fit in. She stops straightening her hair. She stops. She's got this wonderful, wild, curly red hair that she just lets be natural. And she stops doing her nails. She's turned, she helps do the garden. The, the grandparents are really into growing food and living sustainable lives as we are. And Molly takes over this. She rewilds herself in what she eats. She starts to understand about seasonal eating and what grows when and really develops a new person. So I see very much that this is the first novel in which, yes, Molly's been rewilded on a personal level, but also a rewilding in turning onto a love of nature. And I want through this to then be the catalyst for more stories in which Molly becomes the Greta Thunberg of the Northeast and takes on specific environmental messages after this. I'm planning a sequel at the moment as we speak. But I think in a wider sense, what I'm aiming to do is to show the connection that young people have can have with nature and share this in a protagonist that will be sympathetic to them and share some of the wisdom and knowledge that I gained over half a century now of growing our own food, writing about it and eating seasonally. I was very interested in the granny character. And to start with, I was thinking about my own granny. And then I realized as the novel went on that actually she's probably about my age, <laughs> maybe a little bit older. And, <laughs> and that made me think I'm actually very similar to the grandmother in the book in terms of the things that I'm interested in and nutrition and herbal medicines and rewilding and gardening, growing your own vegetables and all of that kind of thing. Whereas the granddaughter is the main character. Molly is, to start with, just thinks it's so old fashioned and like completely irrelevant and to her life and to, to the one that she's still clinging on to in, in Newcastle with her old mates, even though they, they do bully her. And so what is it that without giving too many details away of this, the actual story that draws her to towards what the grandmother represents and what's important to the grandmother that she, that she Molly starts to see it as a as something that she can relate to and take on herself somebody in the story catches covid and Molly there's a pull between the mainstream world that her mother's in, my mother's a nurse in the hospital and the world that Martha has shown her, Martha has come through this portal and Martha's mother was a healer, a herbalist and Molly's desperate to help in this situation. So it begins with her trying to understand about the herbs that maybe Martha has used in the 17th century to help with the plague that she could project perhaps her help with this. There's a, a stripy jumper that the grandmother's knitted her and leaves on the bedpost for her and Molly puts it on for a laugh and at first all her friends are taking the mickey out of her but she thinks, well, actually, it's really comfy and it's really nice and then she goes and has a shower and there's all these little pots of homemade soap and things that the, the nan's made and just through living this and living this life with the nan, she gradually thinks, 
yeah, actually, this isn't that bad and this stuff's really nice and this jumper's really warm and the food really, the spinach pie that Nan cooks, actually, I made a huge fuss about it in the beginning, but it's really okay. And then she helps to grow the vegetables because they can't do it themselves because of what's going on in the book. And she really does just realise that actually this old-fashioned stuff is great, isn't it? And I think that's something as well, a little aside, that people have said, oh, it's so of the moment, this, it's so topical, all this. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's topical and we are talking about it and it's great that these conversations have been ha- being had about sustainability. But I've been banging on about it for years. I used to grow veg with my nan and make things. My nan taught me how to knit and sew. And it's really important, isn't it, that these conversations are had now. And I'm really glad it's coming to the fore. And I think people do come round to things if they've been exposed to it at some point in their life. I know with my kids growing up, they looked at me doing all this stuff and it was just so far removed from what they were interested in but now they're in their late 20s and and they come to me and just where is it you get brown rice from and I'm not feeling very well what essential oils will help me to get better (laughs) I think the exposure and putting the knowledge out there gives people the opportunity to when they're ready to come to these things and I'm interested in you as a little girl how much of Molly was in you, is in you. And are there things when you look back at you as a little girl that you can see, oh yeah, there's a, the clues to, to the woman that I've become? When you ask this, this question, my mind immediately goes back to my own nan, Nanny Dora, wonderful woman, a legend in her own right. I have such fond memories of being in the greenhouse with my nan. And if I'm in my greenhouse now and I pick a ripe tomato, the smell of that is almost like Nan's tapping me on the shoulder, though, putting her hand on my shoulder and says, I'm here, I'm, I'm with you. But as a little girl, I used to um, grow veg with her in her greenhouse and then set up a little shop on the pavement. I'd have brown paper bags and old-fashioned balance weighing scales and sell tomatoes and, and runner beans with, with Nanny Dora. The closeness of her and I and my dad had an allotment. I grew up understanding about food and understanding about where food comes from. And I think that's just totally ingrained in me. I would go, we don't pick primroses and wildflowers now, but I would go with my nan primrose hunting and we'd have a stick and tie these little bundles of primroses on it down. And yeah, I think it comes from Nanny Dora. And there's a and whilst the character of Nan is a me- it's got a lot of me in it, there's a heck of a lot of Nanny Dora in that, in that making me emotion and even thinking about it now. But heck of a lot of Nanny Dora in that character. And so then when you left home and went out into the world, what was your plan for yourself and your life? Just before I went out into the world, I was all set to do languages. I did French and German A-level and I was going to go to university and do languages. But I got caught bunking off PE at school. I was refusing to do PE. And they sent me to help out at the local special school where I fell in love with a little boy who was on the autistic spectrum. I changed tack immediately. and went to teach training college and got a degree in what they called then the education of the mentally handicapped. We now say learning disabilities. And that was my career for 25 years off and on obviously having children and and things in between. But 
I worked in schools for children with learning disabilities with a specialism in those pupils with profound and multiple learning disabilities. So for those that couldn't explore the world for themselves, I wrote sensory dramas. I brought the world to pupils. I was heavily involved in some really cutting edge technology using sounds and vibration and vision, working with somebody called Jesse's Fun to bring music therapy into school. And when I got the sixth form, I wrote a three-year rolling curriculum for them. So I was curriculum lead in school and looking to roll this out nationally as perhaps a national curriculum for pupils with learning disabilities. And I thought that would be my trajectory from then on. Before we go into what happened next, I, that's quite interesting. I didn't know that's what you did. And I did wonder when I was reading your book whether Molly was slightly on the spectrum. Yes. I think it's something I want to very subtly develop as the books go on. I was having this conversation with my daughter just the other week, and my, my son's on the autistic spectrum. I don't think Molly's aware of it. My son is on the autistic spectrum, but hasn't realised until he's in his very late 20s that actually this is what's going on for him. So I think with Molly, it's going to be a slow realisation that it's actually, as it has dawned on my son, that it's okay to be me, that I'm me, I'm unique, and this is how I, I operate in the world. I think that's really important. Yeah, and I think that sense of her feeling different and wanting to fit in and then the shift to, because she finds a, a way out of that, a way of exploring herself as herself, she then feels more able to step away from those people that aren't good for her and to be proudly yeah. different. Yeah, sure. I know with my son, he really, for a while, forced himself to go to youth clubs and, and join in, and it was just getting worse and worse. He was so socially anxious, and he's come to the realisation now that it's actually okay that I don't have a big friendship group. I'm okay to be me. He's massively creative. He makes the most amazing wooden turns, bowls and Christmas trees and things, and we love him just the way he is, and he's so much happier now he's accepted that it's okay to be me. And I think that maybe even without planning it, that is a central message that's coming out of this book, that really we're all different and it is absolutely okay to be yourself. And so then with you, there was a moment, as with most people, where we're going along happily or not so happily in one direction and then something happens and everything sort of shuts down and we're just like okay we have to stop and reassess and so what was that for you yeah yeah I had about four months on the sick at work with chronic back pain and sciatica and I was working incredibly hard I had three children I was working full time. We'd taken in a lodger to help him out as well. That was a difficult situation in itself. I was burning the candle at both ends, partying extremely hard, staying out for nights. And I got in, I got into raves in my thirties and my thi uh, thyroid, I got autoimmune thyroiditis and my thyroid popped in and I just crushed. I went back to work after four months off and the boss 
I was with the nursery class at the time with little three-year-olds, a bit like Porsches without drivers. They were hard work, very low down, bending down, picking up, moving. And I was put into a classroom with more wheelchair-dependent pupils, so there wasn't so much physicality in the job. But I didn't last long. And I burnt out. I describe it that I lost the plot, really. I burnt out physically and emotionally. And after a year on the stick, I was given an agreement, a compromise agreement to leave teaching. All the plans of being a curriculum lead and leading in sensory learning and that were out the window. I had no work. I'd lost my self-esteem. I had no direction. And I was back at home living down this muddy country lane, not really knowing what to do at the time. And so what was the turning point for you? At what point did you find writing and have that as a sort of way of leading you back out of this dark place that you'd found yourself? I've always loved writing. It was something I used to sew little pages together as a child and make books. Um, when, as soon as I started on, when I left my job, I started blogging on something called the Bridge Cottage Way which I don't like the title anymore. It sounds like a religious cult and it leads people straight here. It needs a new name. But I started writing about seasonal eating. There was a, uh, very quickly, there was a lovely little story of when I was teaching, a colleague asked me if I could give her a courgette flower for her tortoise. And it was November. And I said, no, I can't give you a courgette flower for your tortoise. It's November. They don't grow in November. And she said, how on earth do I know that? They're in Tesco's. And so the penny dropped and I thought, yeah, how do people understand about what grows and what is in season when we have strawberries in December in Tesco's, things are shipped in. And that. So I started blogging the Bridge Cottage Way, just writing about what I knew. I knew about seasonal eating. I knew about growing veg. I was amazed that people would say, oh, can I have a recipe for soup? And it's soup, it's just you bung the veg in the pan, you sweat it, you add your liquid, you blitz it, you make soup. But people would... Drinking all this information up that I did. So I blogged about the Bridge Cottage Way. And then through that, I was writing about upcycling and recycling. And somebody asked me if they could, if I would make them a pair of wrist warmers using recycled knitwear. There's a designer called Catwise, Catwise with a K, who makes these really wonderful, weird, and wacky coats. I started doing that. I was the woolly peddler. I had my own business upcycling, wasteful knitwear, design clothing. At the time, my husband said, oh, you'll only ever be like a farmer's wife making jam, won't you? But I thought, oh, no, you don't know me. It was a really successful business. But the same thing happened. I crashed and burned. I worked too hard. I was marketing. I was, I was doing everything. And I was in a terrible way. I was drinking heavily still. And I got therapy. And cut a long story short, it was my therapist who said, have you yeah. ever thought about doing an MA in creative writing? You seem to have all this stuff that you're literally stuffing down your pain. You're eating, you're drinking, you're doing all these things that are, one, harming, killing you. Yeah, they're harming your body, but also you're stuffing down your emotional trauma. And at the time I just said, an MA, me, I'm not clever enough. I, I couldn't possibly do that. I had no confidence in myself. My self-esteem, as well as my health, was at rock bottom. 
But with, with Claire's support, my therapist, I applied to Newcastle Uni. I got in. I was astounded. And that was 2019, beginning of lockdown. I started my writing. I loved the module, Writing for Children and Young Adults. And that was where the rewilding of Molly McFlynn was birthed. I'd never looked back. I absolutely love my life now. I love my writing. I love the purpose it gives to every day. I gave up drinking for a year. My health's great. I think imposter syndrome is something, particularly as women, we all struggle with a bit, but my confidence is much better than it was. And what did Molly teach you as you were writing? Molly taught me, and it was something that my lecturer at Newcastle also said, that I have got a, a strong voice, that the writing that I bring to the page has a strong narrative voice, and that it's okay to tell my story. We smell this, what's fiction, what's non-fiction, but you can get your story in through your fiction and it is an opening to be able to relate to people what's going on in in here then what have you found as the book has gone out into the world that the impact has had on people when you've been out and talking to people about the book i've been absolutely astounded at the reception the book's got few things one one person said it's opened up a whole new world to them that they didn't know existed of, of season and eating, some of the music that I mentioned in the book, this sort of alternative world that is showing people. So many older people, especially my age of people, have said it's made them cry. They've wept tears as they've realised that they're not alone, that, that, that there are many people there who are in our alternative, that this way of life is them. So there's been an identity, I think, of people coming together in this community. And I think that's been great for, for me as the writer as well, because, you know, sometimes you think, yes, I'm a bit of a weirdo, but, you know, there's all these other weirdos out there and there's lots and lots of us. And it, it's this lovely sense of community of bringing us all together. But how great that I've been able to write a book that blazes this trail. And also for young women reading about Molly, there's a lot in her that, that young women can relate to. So what particular things do you think have stood out for people? She's quite individual and she's not relying on lots and lots of other people. She's bold, she's brave, that sort of sticking in the head above the parapet and actually saying how it is, I think is important. It's hard to be brave. It's hard to say, look, I believe in this. And I think hopefully she gives people, the young people, the courage that you don't have to go with the flow. I think now again of my own daughter when she went to uni and she just found it so hard to fit in. She wasn't part of the sort of fashionista crowd. She wasn't part of that crowd. And you can find your tribe. You will find your tribe, but you've got to be an individual and you've got to be yourself and go with what you believe in before you do find your tribe. And you've said that that this is to be a series and that Molly will evolve as she gets older and carries on her adventures through the series of the books. And so what's your vision for the future, both in the series, but also with your view of life on how we try and adapt and evolve with where we're at with climate change and sustainability and 
trying to reconnect with nature and with ourselves? The work, this first one in the rewilding, it's more of a general rewilding and turning on to the climate crisis. But I think through the sequels and both on the what we can be doing, it's all about what we can do on a personal level that will contribute to the bigger picture. So the sequel I'm writing at the moment is around tree preservation. I was tying between two ideas. One was urban flooding and the reintroduction of beavers, and the other was tree preservation. And then if I look out the window where I am now, I can see the gap that was Sycamore Gap, where we had the tree come down. So I really want to belt as I did with COVID in the first book, I want to write in the moment now and get this sense of collective grief that our community is feeling. But to bring, to turn that round and bring hope for the, that through action, we've got hope for the future. So I want Molly to be leading a campaign about tree preservation there. And I think then we can look at that ourselves. We can all do something, whether it's making a commitment not to fly on holiday whether it's eating less meat in our diet, we could all do something. So I think in the specific stories that Molly will be telling, hopefully she'll be encouraging people to each do their little bits around these themes and topics. And so then in the light of everything that you've written about and with Molly and the, the way that you live your life yourself and everything that you've been through yourself, how do you define courage? That it's okay to be different. That you can stand up for what you believe in. And I just keep repeating that phrase, it's okay to be different. Thank you so much, Sue, for creating this story of a girl who has the courage to be different and to follow her heart. Thank you so much, Sue. I'm really looking forward to... The, the sequels and to following the journey of Molly as she gets older. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Lou. It's been great. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sue, for showing us that at any stage in life, we can walk away from what's not working for us and turn to the life that is right for us and for the world around us. You can find out more about Sue's work on www.suereadwrites.co.uk and follow her on Instagram at to read rights. Thank you so much for listening. I hope today's story inspired you on your own Brave New Girl journey. If you need further support, head over to www.bravenewgirlmedia.com. <laughs>